James Hudnall served a stint in the Air Force and then landed a job as a computer software consultant. But he dreamed of being a writer and had always enjoyed comics. So, while working in computers, James took a side job as a marketing director for a small comic book publisher. It was the end he needed, as James has now written comics for nearly all of the top publishers in the industry, including such titles as Alpha Flight, Hard Case, and the critically acclaimed unauthorized biography of Lex Luthor. James's most celebrated work may be his own creations, however, with trend-setting titles such as Devastator, The Age of Heroes, and Espers. His original series, Harsh Realm, was even developed into a Fox television show by X-Files creator Chris Carter. James talks with us about the rising popularity of non-superhero-based comics, gives some tips on the writing and rewriting process, shares some hard-learned lessons on dealing with Hollywood, and much more, as James Hudnall joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. Uh, I am Kevin Bukanaga. And I'm Krista Bean, and today we're welcoming to the show writer James Hudnall. Thanks, thanks for joining us today, James. Thank you for having me. Um, now, I personally met you, uh, I don't know, over 10 years ago, maybe, uh, when I used to own a com- comic book store in Manhattan Beach. You were actually the very first, I don't know, you probably don't know this, but you were the very first uh, comic creator to come into the store to do a signing. Uh, you were there with uh, Derek Robertson, if I remember correctly, uh, in promoting you know, the Malibu Ultraverse stuff that uh, you guys were doing at the time. Um, and since then, obviously, you've gone on to write uh, uh, a lot of creator-owned stuff for Image, and, you know, obviously, in the past, you've written a lot of stuff for Marvel DC. Um, so, no, I, we appreciate you coming on uh, to the, the show and actually sharing your sort of expertise and experience with us. Um, first off, since the podcast is, is primarily for writers, for aspiring writers, uh, I just kind of wanted to talk to you a little, little, little bit about how you got your start. Now, uh, for those you know who are interested in a career in, in, in comic book writing, it's, it's different than for artists. Artists can kind of show a portfolio and the editor will, you know, you can obviously uh, see in 30 seconds if the person has any talent or not. Writing is a little bit different. It's hard to get people to read things. Um, you actually took an interesting route um, and I know a lot of young writers today are, you know, are in the, the mindset of developing your own material, uh, you know, writing their own comics, but then having to try to get an artist to develop it and take it to Image or Dark Horse or something to get it published or even self-publishing. You actually had an interesting route uh, to being a comic writer that I thought uh, we could talk a little bit about. You actually took a job working for Eclipse Comics as in, in the marketing department, you were their marketing director. Uh, can you tell me how you were able to make that transition to, to writer? Well, um, it was sort of a series of coincidences that were, uh, you know, when life presents you with opportunities, you have the oppor- you should jump on them right. or let life pass you by. So sure. I moved up to uh, Santa Rosa, California. Uh, this was in the mid 80s. Um, and that's uh, it's where I was born, and I was and I wanted to live up there for a while. So um, it's in Sonoma County, and it just happens that the local comic book people mm-hmm. were Cat Ironwood and Dean Mullaney who were doing Eclipse Comics, and it was just two people running this company right. um, out of their house, and uh, they, it was a very it was a small press, but it was like one of the early independent companies. In right, fact, right. they were one of the first, and um, 
I got to know them, and uh, I wanted to get into comics, and I wanted to write comics, but just as then as now, it's not so easy as saying I want to write comics. Right, right. You know, because everyone says that, and everyone wants to do that, but, um, you know, it takes more than just saying or wanting to. Um, And to be honest, I wanted to know more about the business. I wanted to see how it worked so that I could have a better idea how to get my uh my work across and and promote it and that sort of thing so um at the time i was working uh writing software for a local company and uh i decided since i i had the ability to do this i i asked that i get one day a week that i can do something else so i every monday i worked for eclipse i i offered to work for them for free mm-hmm. Uh, as their marketing person to help them promote their books. So, and they took me up on that because they got a free employee. And um, sure. so uh, I got jumped into the business and I learned everything about publishing because to be honest, a few years before that, I had wanted to self-publish my own comics. And this is way before, there was only like a few people doing that. Mm-hmm. It was a very... It was a very rare thing for somebody to want to self-publish. There was, you know, ElfQuest and right. Tree And uh, before that, there was this thing, The First Kingdom by Jack Katz, which came out like in the 70s. Right. There wasn't a whole lot of self-publishers. And I wanted to do my own thing. I didn't want to be dictated to by editors and that sort of thing. I wanted to, you know, present my... I wasn't just about right creating my own stuff. I wanted to have a say in how things were done and uh but you know, I needed to learn the business first. So I went to work for Eclipse for that reason. So I also knew that once I was in, it would be easier for me to get something going. Sure. And so I took a while before I tried to present them with something and the first thing I presented them with was Espers. And in order to make it more saleable, I had access to the Rolodex at the office and they mm-hmm. had the names and addresses of all the people in comics at the time. <laughs> so I just started calling up people. I found out who was, you know, from the grapevine of the conversations of the of the office, I knew who was working and who wasn't, who was looking for work. So I was, you know, I, I called up some artists that I knew were between projects because they had been talking to Eclipse and they were looking for work. So I knew they were available and that's how I got my artists. So being in the right place at the right time is important. Also having access to information that you wouldn't have had otherwise, because if I hadn't been there, if I hadn't had access to Rolodex, I wouldn't have known how to contact those artists. Right. Would have had a much harder time uh, basically packaging my book. Right. I mean, it's, it sounds like it's a lot of ingenuity, uh, but it is, you know, uh, taking the initiative and, and going in there and uh, finding a different route in. You don't hear stories like that a whole lot. That's because uh, I, you know, I've been studying this for a while. I've always wanted to be a writer and do entertainment. But I know that everyone hits their head against the wall and they get in line. And I don't like getting in line. I don't like standing (laughs) in line. (laughs) You know, I'd rather climb over the wall than get in line and hope to get in there eventually. You know, if it was Willy Wonka's factory was real, I wouldn't wait for a golden ticket. Right. (laughs) You would, work as their, you would work as their marketing director and then get yeah, your way in that way. Yeah, dress up like an Oompa Loompa or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I would, wouldn't pass as one because I'm 6'4". But. <laughs> you'd, have to, you'd have to crawl around on the ground and pretend you're an Oompa Loompa. Yeah. 
funny. Um, now, on your on your website, uh, thehud.com, um, there's a section that's devoted to writing rules and advice. And um, one thing you mentioned that was interesting that um, was, you said writing is forty writing good fiction writing is forty percent writing and sixty percent rewriting. Um, can you talk a little bit about what your own personal writing rewriting process is like? Uh, yes, uh, what I do is uh, well, when it comes to comics, what I do is I uh, break down my story for myself uh, in like one sentence lines per panel. So I, I'll first I'll do like a page. Uh, I'll go like page one, and like in about five or six sentences, I'll describe what happens on that page. Uh, and I break down my story into X number of pages, whatever it is, like 22 pages. I'll break out the story with like a paragraph per page describing what, what are the key things that happen. Mm -hmm. Then I split, then I break down those paragraphs into separate sentences and I put them into panels. And the panels can be just like a, a very simple uh, breakdown of uh, what happens in the panel. And I keep it that way for the most part for when I send it to the artist. I tell the artist only what they need to know that's critical and they can give them the idea visually because I want to inspire them. When I started, I was I was trying to be like Alan Moore and I, I saw how he wrote scripts and he, he would write like 10 pages describing one panel or something. That's just not the way to do it, really. You want it, you know, the best way to get a story across to an artist is you want them to be inspired and you want them to get the key. Idea. You don't want them to uh, lose important information because mm -hmm. you're telling a story visually and a comic book is a crystallization of the events in a story. The, there are moments of time captured panel by panel is a moment. It's a snapshot. So you have to each panel has to be an ideal snapshot of what's happening at that particular second or moment in in the story. Mm -hmm. So you got to keep it simple and pure and easy for them to understand and remember. Uh, so that's what I do. And then I add in my dialogue um, and captions if there are any. But once they draw it. Then I look at what they drew and I rethink everything that I wrote in terms of the dialogue and captions. Mm -hmm. Might toss the captions or I might add some and I might rewrite the dialogue to better suit what the artist drew because they might have added some of their own uh, elements that might, you know, details that might actually be useful. Right. Uh, and so I, you know, I might have somebody comment on something that reflects what's something in the scene or so that's one way I rewrite. And then, so I, a lot of times I letter the book myself. So, uh, when I'm in the course of lettering, I may rethink some things as I'm lettering it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then at that point it's sort of set in stone and well, not always, but then it's pretty much there on paper. So, and I would, Oh, go ahead. Oh, that's how the process works for me. And I, I would imagine there's sort of a, a fine line you have to walk between um, getting enough information across to the artist so they're illustrating what you, you know, your story, but at the same time allowing them the freedom to do what they do rather than dictating every detail of 
what should be in there, get, allowing them to have their own freedom to create. Is that yeah. correct? Yes, that's 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 what I try to do. And I also when I when I talk to the artist I, about doing a story, I tr they're my first audience, so I don't want to give them too much information ahead of time about what's going to happen mm -hmm. because they're going to read it and I want them to be surprised as they're reading it because I want them to be entertained as they're reading the script. Mm -hmm. They're going to know generally what the story is going to be about ahead of time, but they don't know exactly what's going to happen. So I, I don't want to tell them ahead of time. I want it to be a surprise when they read the script. Mm -hmm. But um, before I draw, write the story, um, I often talk to them to get a sense of what interests them because, you know, artists like to draw certain things more than others, and they're good at certain things more than others. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to kind of tailor your story to their strengths or I to see. their interests because they'll put more effort in. You, you, want, to, you want to take advantage of their talents. Mm -hmm. um, so it's always good to put, throw them some bone, you know, throw them some things that they want to draw because then they'll be in more into it and it will show in the story. And if the art is better, then it helps the story. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Just, yeah. Catering to kind of what they, what they're good at and what they're going to be the most enthusiastic to, to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Now you obviously written a lot of superhero books for Marvel, DC, Malibu, you know, uh, the, Legends of the Dark Knight, uh, Hard Case, uh, Adventures of Superman, you know, go on. Um, but for your own creator-owned stuff, you're sort of, uh, we were talking about it before, you're sort of, uh, you know, uh, ahead of your time. You developed a lot of non-superhero-based fare when it was not really popular to do so. I mean, you know, back in the 80s especially, a little before, I guess, uh, you would develop a lot of the stuff. Uh, you know, it, although I guess Esper's was in the 80s, um, you know, it was a lot of it was relegated to the bottom shelf, black and white, it was, you know, independent publishers. And now, you know, after the success of, of you know, sort of uh, non-superhero comics turned, you know, entertainment property like 300 or The Walking Dead or Road to Perdition, it's become sort of, you know, trendy to look for that type of material. But I mean, you've done stuff like Harsh Realm and Devastator, which are, you know, sort of action sci-fi cyberpunk-esque titles or shut up and die you know crime noir um or age of heroes which is fantasy uh which uh you know uh, you had mentioned you were bringing back you know it's in color and you, you, you know you're kind of bringing that back which is great but you know can you describe a little bit about your sort of creative process you know in, in terms of creating these these whole new worlds as opposed to another superhero book well um I feel that the industry needs new ideas to be relevant. Comics cannot rest on 60, 70 year old properties like it does. And the, the industry needs fresh blood. It needs new ideas. But also as a creative person, I don't want to be the guy who writes Batman or the guy who writes the Hulk, which a lot of my contemporaries at the time, that's what their goal was. Sure. They wanted to get into Marvel and DC and be the Hulk writer, which to me is like a horrible thing to want to do. Mm. <laughs> because first of all, you're limiting your 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 if you if your career is to just carry on other people's ideas then you really not you're not you're not doing anything original and you're not really bringing a lot to the table even though some people have done great things with other people's characters i just don't i never wanted to be that person 
Right. I wanted to be the person who created something new and original and different. And um, also, as much as I like comics uh, and, and some characters, I really wasn't interested in uh, doing that. Um, I was more inspired by European and Japanese comics. Uh, I was, you know, I was one of the first people to bring manga to the U.S. And um, right. I... I uh, you actually brought Area 88, correct? Yeah, well, Viz was created in part because I was, when I was at Eclipse, I, uh, I contacted all these uh, Japanese publishers and wanted to publish manga in the U.S. There's no before anyone was doing it. Right. Uh, and uh, I sent out, I was writing all these publishers, and the interest that I, that I generated made them... Kadansha, I think it was, or, or not Kadansha, it was another publisher. Um, they decided they wanted to uh, do an, their own American publishing company, so they created Viz, and they contacted me, and I was one of the first rewriters for Viz, and that Area 88 was one of the books I did. Um, but um, at the same time, uh, A Lone Wolf and Cub came out. Uh, right. So, but um, anyway, uh, but, you know, the thing that inspired me about the manga world is that there's so much diversity of stories and there's stories for every interest and every age. Sure. It's very, American, very mainstream in Japan. Yeah. And in American comics, it was limited to superheroes for the right. most part. And I don't, I don't hate superheroes like a lot of people in the eighties were, they, they were, they hated superheroes. Uh, a lot of comic book people because I think they felt constrained by them. But sure. uh, to me, uh, a superhero is just a character, and you do with it what you do with it. It's it doesn't matter if it's a superhero or not. Right. Uh, it's but you know they felt like it was a ghetto or something. But the thing is, they didn't do a lot, and I did. I deliberately set out to do my own stuff. Uh, I felt it was important also that uh, people do comics that would appeal to people who don't read comics, and that was always my goal. So everything I've done has been an attempt to appeal to people outside of comics because I feel that's necessary. Comics need new readers. The problem with the industry is it was focused entirely on the readers they had and catering to their specific whims. And the problem with that is the specific whims of geeks is very different than the average, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and it's, in a way, it's sort of the more Byzantine and, and inbred the stories are because they're they're referencing to some obscure arcana from the past right. comic book stories. It turns off people that don't read comics because they don't know what they're talking about, you know. Right, right. right. And I feel it's necessary to talk to people in the story so that they don't need to know anything about in the history of you know they can get it from the story itself. And uh, that's not being done to my to my mind, even now by a lot of comics, I mean, they've gotten a little bit better, but not much. Right. Except for, you know, as you say, Walking Dead and books like that, which are their own thing. But, um, but I mean the mainstream comics as we call them. So that's, that was my goal is to, uh, get to people outside of comics to do something fresh and original for comics, but also creatively, and no matter what medium you're in, a lot of stuff is just rehashes of other people's ideas. And, I mean, you could look at, well, the movies today are all 
based on other things or, or the remakes of something. But, um, you know, I just feel like you got to have fresh ideas or, and I'm not saying that my ideas are totally original. Uh, they're influenced by things like anything, but, uh, sure. I try to take a different approach and I try to, so my stuff, when it does come out, it tends to be way ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. uh, it tends to be imitated like 10 years later or 20 years later. You right. Know? So, and that's what they do with my stuff is uh, I'll come up with, I'll be, I was the first person to do crime fiction in comics, not detective fiction, crime fiction. Mm -hmm. um, I was the first person to do a lot of things in comics that other people started doing, you know, following the trend. Um, so anyway, but that's been my goal. Well, now, um, your, your personal process may have been a little different from a lot of people since you were already, um, an established comic book writer, but can you talk a little bit about, um, developing a title with a creator owned comic book company like image and what that's like and how, um, a writer and an artist can get a company like image to publish their comic book? Well, image is about the only game in town these days in terms of creator owned. Um, but, uh, how you do it is you've got to show them that you can do a comic that's of interest. If you haven't done anything before, then what you need to do is do a comic on your own with somebody. You don't have to publish it necessarily, but you have to do at least an eight page story that shows that you have the initiative to get something done, that get something drawn, that tells the story, tells it well, and you've got to do that on spec, just like a lot of people in Hollywood have to write screenplays on spec to get noticed. Right. You've got to do the same thing in comics, and that's harder if you have to get an artist because you've got to get somebody that's willing to spend the time to draw the story, and that could be time-consuming. But there are a lot of people that are hungry to get in, too, and you can get um, artists to do that, um, and I have. Mm -hmm. Um because they want the opportunity to be seen also. So to do something on your own and you also have to choose to do something that um, is going to be appealing that they're going to want to publish. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a catch 22 um, because it can be very difficult. I mean, a lot of people, that's why a lot of people will imitate other things. As we were saying, uh, a lot of people just imitating existing ideas. Right. So there's like 900 zombie things coming out now. And, right. You know, there was ninja things before that and angels and vampires, you know, because they think they, that's the easy road to getting accepted. And often it is, but not necessarily because there's everyone else is doing it. Mm -hmm. um, I always take the hard road, which is not has not been that rewarding for me. But I, you know, I'm hoping that eventually it will be. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> But so, I, I, I just take the hard road because I don't want to be like other people. So ideally, you would want to do something completely fresh and new that they love and are willing to take a chance on. Yeah, and it's not easy to convince people because people yeah. are often afraid of new ideas mm -hmm. of, because they think it's too risky and, and, and so on. That's why a lot of my stuff doesn't have resonance until years later after other people have started imitating it. Right, right. Mm -hmm. When I came out with it, it was like, it was different, you know, so different that, you know, and unfortunately I had the naive thought that, you know, if you're original and different and fresh that people are going to go, wow, that's so great, you know, 
but it doesn't work that way. A lot of times people are not, don't respond well to uh, the fresh ideas or different ideas. It takes time for people to digest them or accept them. So, mm-hmm. And I think even if, if they do find an original idea and think it's great, I think the problem is a lot of people don't, a lot of executives and, and, and people of that ilk uh, have a trouble sometimes uh, trusting their own instincts and saying, I, I, I like this, but does everybody else? And until that happens, they don't trust their own instinct to kind of champion it. Yeah, they don't want to admit they like it until they know everyone else likes it too. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunately very true, especially in Hollywood. Um, right. They have like legions of people under them that read this stuff and they, they want their opinions uh, to re, to, to kind of evaluate it, you know. Well, um, and I've been a story analyst uh, for uh, a production company, Warner Brothers. But nowadays, uh, because of, of cutbacks and, and cost control, um, a lot of the first line of, of readers and things are, uh, paid, are unpaid interns. They're, you know, college students that are the first people to, and they won't touch a script unless it's been, you know, passed through and gotten good coverage from, you know, a, a reader, i.e. unpaid intern slash college student, which is kind of crazy yes. if you think about it. It is, and that's also in comics, a lot of times editors were started out as assistants mm-hmm. who really had no qualifications to be editors, except that they were fans, you know, right, right. qualification of editing <laughs> And uh, unfortunately, people that didn't understand writing and the storytelling and uh, the important things that an editor should know uh, were the editors. And I think that hurt the quality of a lot of books because a lot of things were done in comics that should never have been done. Just to, uh, what I mean is just the production quality. It's bad, really bad, especially in the 90s. There was... They were hiring anybody who could draw a straight line or, you know. Right. Um, and it just really, it really burned out a lot of people on comics and um, it never really truly recovered. It's sort of, it's got like um, sort of a, a hype. Comics have a certain hype, cachet, but I think it's going to be uh, a little, I think, well, I, it's also transitioning and publishing. I think, you know, we're going to, to digital uh, and so that's that too. But um, anyway, yeah. Well, I, I wanted to talk to you just a, a, for a second. I know you've had uh, a property, Harsh Realm, developed into a television series, but you've also gone the other way. Um, you actually wrote a spec script uh, for Devastator, which you actually went the reverse route and turned that into a comic book series. Um, can you tell me, uh, you know, what that process was like and, and how that came about? Yeah, I was living in Hollywood for a while and uh, wanted to get in to be a screenwriter, like a lot of people. So you need to write a spec screenplay, and I had several that I did that uh, there were adaptations of some of my comics because I thought I could, it would be killing two birds with one stone if I could just adapt one of my comics to a movie. And that way, I could sell a property and get a screen, get in as a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. But with Devastator, I had this original idea, and I and I did it as a spec first, and I worked with my manager to uh, get it, you know, acceptable. And I sort of wrote it with the intention of it being a low budget film, just because I thought it'd be easier to get made that way. Mm-hmm. 
a low budget science fiction film because it was at that period of time where science fiction was sort of fading a little. Uh, it was between the time where CGI really took off and the time when uh, science fiction was sort of not, it had gone through its its uh, Star Wars Blade Runner phase and it was sort of not hot. Um, it was sort of in that period and um, it was a science fiction story so I tried to make it more like down to earth and so it was a cyberpunk kind of martial arts thing. And um, anyway, uh, didn't sell it, but uh, I did uh, think it was a good story for a comic because it had a semi-superhero-esque uh, element to it. So uh, I decided to do it as a comic with image. Right. Um, and so is that is that something that I know you're bringing back uh, – uh, Age of Heroes. Is that something that you would revisit in the future? I'd like to. Yeah, we've you know, on and off. My manager still tried to get it going, and we've had people interested in doing it in TV. And you know, it's been sort of, it's sort of been kicked around a lot in Hollywood over the years, uh, but it never really got too far. Um, you know, it was sort of like in development at a few places, but. Um, mm-hmm. I just, uh, I kind of want to redo it and update it. And I've thought about that, updating it, even though it was ahead of its time. Right. And it still sort of is. I It's set in the future, but it's the near future. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to update some of the ideas to make them better uh, based on what I know now. Because it's about things, electronic drugs. It was like pre-Matrix. Okay? Right. Mm. Before the Matrix and of all people being able to download information directly into their head. Right, by like a chip, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah, I did it with an electronic drug. So it was a chip that you, you have like a socket in the back of your head and you just plug, and it's not as ugly as it sounds, it's barely noticeable, but you just plug in this small chip in the back of your head and and it automatically downloads skills and information and that sort of thing. Um, I did that before the Matrix. Yeah, that's from what I remember, your uh, uh, Devastator came out in 98, and The Matrix didn't come out till like, 99, correct? Uh, yeah, but I wrote the story years before that. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, the script, you mean? Yeah. The script I wrote in ni- early 90s. And oh, wow. I'm, and it, it had been around, so I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't see it. Right. <laughs> I'm not saying they ripped it off, but I'm saying... Sure, because sure. they probably read the same science fiction books I did, and I did get the ideas from science fiction books, but... Uh, you know, I was doing it before then. But anyway, um, you know, I I have ideas to enhance the elements of the story further. Uh, so I'd like to kind of do that. Make it more, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I think, it, you know, improve on some of the ideas. Um, sort of update them. So that's, I've talked to, I talked to Greg Horn, the artist, about doing that. Mm-hmm. And doing it in color. And right. one of the problems is I never finished the comic. We did two issues. It was supposed to be a three-issue story. Uh, I just sort of – it wasn't really making that much money, and I just felt really bad about having Greg draw it. And I kind of – he was willing to draw it, and it would have not made any money probably on the third issue. Mm-hmm. So I didn't write it, give him a script, and I should have because I would have at least had a finished product. Right, right. <laughs> and I wish I had done it. It's one of those life regrets things. Uh but uh, I think, 
you know, he's a much better artist now, and I think I can. It would be nice to do it as a. So I, you know, I'm. It's something that we've talked about. Right. Uh, about bringing back. So. Well, that'd be cool. But Age of Heroes uh, is a book that's been near and dear to my heart, and uh, uh, fantasy is big in Europe, and it always has been. And um, John Ridgway, the artist, lives in England, and uh, he's developed. There's some a British magazine called Spirit Magazine that started this year, and they have been running it in color. Uh, John's been coloring it, and uh, they're going to be putting out a um, a hardcover of the first two issues of Age of Heroes in Color in England this year, I think in September. Okay. Yeah, so uh, we're hopefully going to be continuing the series and uh, doing it all in color now. And I'm planning to get it all, uh, the color stuff, available on Kindle and uh, iPads for digital. That's cool. So so is it something that you're going to uh, put out on your on your own, like through an Amazon or something like that? Or is it something that, uh, you know, you would take maybe maybe the image or a dark horse or something like that? I have a deal with Devil's Due. They're supposed to, they've got some Harsh Realm is available on Kindle right now uh, as a download. Um, But I I haven't seen my stuff on uh, Apple yet. So I got to, I'm following up with that. But um, they're supposed to get all my backlist into digital. So, uh, you can download them from Kindle and, uh, but you can get up some of my stuff now from Kindle and uh, hopefully soon from Apple. Oh, cool. oh, great. That's great. Now, um, going back to Harsh Realm for a minute, um, there's the whole story where uh, X-Files creator Chris Carter um, developed Harsh Realm into a TV series for Fox. And then there became legal issues about um, he, he didn't want to give you credit as a creator. Um and it was a case that went to court and you won. Um, can you give us just a little backstory on that? And then also um, some advice on how other writers can watch out for things like that and protect themselves from situations like that. Yeah. The publisher was Harris comics, which does Vampirella. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't really been doing that much lately. that I'm aware of, but um, they, uh, they decided they want to do a creator online and, uh, I was one of the first people they talked to, and I did two books with them. Harsh Realm was one of them. It was sold to me as a creator-owned thing. Uh, so I just, and I thought the story was wild enough that there was no way that anyone would make it into a movie or TV show because this, the ideas were, uh, you know, again, pretty far ahead of their time. They, they involved pocket universes and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I just signed the contract. It was very simple because I didn't think anything was going to happen. And, you know, but it was supposed to be creator-owned. And I was under the impression it was creator-owned. And I didn't really get a lawyer, and I should have. Well, if you sign a contract with somebody where they control the rights, uh, even if you, quote-unquote, own the copyright, if they control the rights, they technically own it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't realize at the time. Uh. Which means that... Uh, they can shop it around to Hollywood without your, without any, without you being able to say anything about it. Oh, uh, okay. It's like an option, basically. They they option the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happened was uh, I they weren't doing anything with it at all. I mean, the books came out. It didn't sell that well. 
because they didn't really know how to market it and um, it came out at a certain time where the interest, it was the, during the bad girl period where bad girl comics were selling and mm-hmm. that was like where everyone's interest was. Um, but anyway, um, so I just said, you know, I got a, a manager friend uh, that I'm working with in Hollywood. I was living in Hollywood at the time. I said, you know, let me try to shop it around Hollywood. And they said, sure, go ahead. So I did. And I got NBC uh, wanting to do it as a TV show. And I got a producer, a Law & Order guy, not Dick Wolf, but somebody who had worked on that show, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, John Shirley, a science fiction writer, was going to work on it with me. Um, and... Uh, Everything was going down to, you know, they were talking money and we were, we got down to the point where they were getting ready to talk money and get this thing going. They were all very interested. And I, I, during the whole process, I was telling Harris about it, what, what was going on. And they said, great, great. And then when I, when it was down to, okay, we're ready to talk money now, all of a sudden their lawyer calls and calls them and says, you can't talk to James Hudnall. He doesn't have any right to talk to you about this. This is, we own it. Oh, no. Talk to us. Well, that killed the deal because they got scared and they just said they dropped it. Mm. And that pissed me off like you can't even begin to imagine. <laughs> I, was, I was really upset because they had, they could have just told me up front, this is how it works. Uh, you don't own the rights. And it probably would have kept me from pursuing it like I did. But mm-hmm. they just led me on and led me on. Anyway, so... Uh, Anyways, I just, I just was, I kind of said, you know, but my man, I I had an agent that had been negotiating with NBC. It was at CAA. And he, uh, he said, I can still save this. Maybe not with NBC, but I can probably attach, get a a producer attached. Who's a big name. So I said, okay, fine. But I was just, you know, pretty upset. So he came back to me and said, okay, I've got two producers that interested in this uh tell me which one you th- you would like to me to go with and i said okay so they said james cameron <laughs> and chris carter so i said chris carter because cameron because chris carter was hot producer doing x-files and stuff he was mm-hmm. and i like the x-files whereas cameron you know very successful and i liked his movies but at the time, he was not making anything. He didn't have anything coming out. He was notoriously took years to get anything right. going. Right, was, yeah. And I, and I said, it'll probably happen if I get uh, Carter and not Cameron. So I said, go with uh, Carter. So, uh, you know, I had this was behind Harris's back, basically. Because mm-hmm. uh, my, my agent was working with Harris because he had to. But, you know, he was still keeping me in the loop. So anyway, uh, they got so they, you know, they started talking to Carter. Carter got it made, got got the deal with Fox. But at no point would uh, Carter talk to me or Harris just, you know, blew me off. And they said, we'll let you know what what happens when it happens. And they Uh. didn't. I knew I heard about everything through my agent. Oh, gosh. They did nothing to tell me anything. They didn't know that my agent was telling me all this, everything was going on. Anyway, so uh, I thought, you know, well, they optioned their thing. They took our story, the title, you know, 
but they decided they were going to change this thing to make it contemporary instead of in the future. They changed it from uh, a artificial universe to a uh, virtual reality. Right, right. Now, this is before The Matrix came out, mm-hmm. but the show came out like a month after the movie The Matrix came out. Oh. So it, everyone thought it was a ripoff of The Matrix. Yeah, bad right? timing. Well, it wasn't a ripoff at all. Uh, and, uh, I think that Carter did a bad job with the virtual reality stuff. Mm-hmm. They, they should have consulted me at all. You know, they never even consulted me. They never talked to me. They wouldn't talk to me. I was even in uh, a meeting with somebody on the Fox lot. Another producer wanted to talk to me about something. And so I was on the Fox lot and the guy's office was right next to Chris Carter's. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, you should go see Chris Carter. And I go, well, he doesn't seem to want to talk to me. Oh, no. You know, and he said, I, my secretary just called them and said, you know, come on over. So you can go over and talk to them. So I said, OK. So I walked over there and they were acting like, who are you? What do you want? Oh, no. And I told them who I was. And they were like, well, he's not here right now. He's not in, even in he's in Vancouver. So he can't talk to you. And I said, OK, well you know, um, so-and-so just called and said to come over there and you guys said, okay, well, I don't know who you talked to, but that didn't happen. So, uh, you know, I, so I said, okay, so I just left them some of my books and I said, you know, uh, just tell them I happen to be in, in the area and just said hi. And that was it, you know, but yeah, I never heard once from Chris Carter. So then I found out the show come, came on the first episode. I didn't, I saw it because my agent sent me a copy of the pilot mm-hmm. before it aired and nowhere in there was the credits for us that uh, created the book wow. that's terrible it's totally absurd they yeah. could have given us that at least you know yeah just a, so they, they, based they on said, the comic goodbye <laughs> yeah so i said to them look um you option the material you use the title the story is the same the characters may have been changed because you changed their names, right. but they're technically the same because they're doing the same function. You know, the, the the hero of the story was a detective in my story, and they changed it to a military guy. But he's a military guy investigating something, so it ends up being the same difference, you know? Right. Yeah. And the villain was a teenager, and they turned him into an old general guy, but basically he's a person that goes rogue, uh, you know, goes into this virtual world and gets power crazy. And that's the same exact thing that happens in my story. So anyway, uh, basically to boil it down, um, there was a, we, we ended up suing them because they refused to give us credit. And that's all we asked for. We didn't ask for money. We just wanted to credit. Mm-hmm. And so it ended up going to court, but, it, but Fox canceled the show three episodes in because they were having problems with Carter and, uh, they decided to uh, they they uh, aired the show against the baseball playoffs. That's how they premiered it. Oh, so no. they they killed it. They put it on Friday night at nine o'clock, which is a death zone right. show, and so it didn't last. Uh, but they basically settled with us. So I won in in that they settled with us, and they gave us pretty much everything we wanted. They gave us credits in all future versions. So you can get the DVD of Harsh Realm, and we have credits on the front of the show. Oh, okay. It's in a title card on the front, which is great, because before, they, at the last second in the third episode, 
in the ending crawl where things are going by really super right, fast right. and the type is like one point, you know, <laughs> um, they put us like at the end of that. And, but you know, it says inspired by the comic harsh realm, not based on or anything. Right. Uh, Cause he didn't want to give, give any, you know, that it was based on or anything. He, even, even though the show was canceled, he still wouldn't give us that based on, which is pretty weak if you ask me. Right. No. Yeah. But he, you know, he has this huge ego, I'm saying Carter, where, you know, he's the creator of the show. Well, he created the show, the TV show, but he did not create the ideas, of, you know. The material, the yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, he tried to pass off that it that the comic was just a ripoff of, of uh, uh, Heart of Darkness, which is by Joseph Conrad, which is mm-hmm. not, not true at all. Mm-hmm. Heart, you know, Heart of Darkness, which was made into Apocalypse Now. Right, uh, yeah. Which was, again, they changed the settings and everything in Apocalypse Now uh, to Vietnam and a general when it was about a doctor in, in like, in uh, South America. But um, anyway, uh, my story was not based at all on, <laughs> you know, that it just, it was a parable about power corrupts. And I used the whole video game kind of idea that in a video game when you go you know most video games fantasy games you become more powerful the more people you kill mm-hmm. you, you go up levels by killing people and destroying things so i thought you know moralistically that's not really a great thing <laughs> to teach people that you know, get better the more you kill and you know so i was just saying you know if this was a reality if you went into a world where in this world, it was based on fantasy type, uh, ro- you know, role playing type fantasy. If you went into a world where that was real, um, and you were like killing people, it would it would mentally disturb you. You know, right. you would become uh, a person who didn't think twice about murdering people and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, that was sort of the subtext of the story of my story. It was about how power corrupts people. And um, so really it had nothing to do with the heart of darkness uh, at all. But, um, you know, that was Chris Carter's defense in his attempts to uh, argue my case. Right. Anyway, so the, the moral of the story is when you make a deal with uh, anyone for any kind of creative property, if you uh, option you, if somebody options your material or if you make a, uh, con- a deal with a publisher on your stuff, you have to insist that you uh, will be credited in any production or merchandise or anything that gets made from your property. Because if that's not in the contract, they don't have to give you credit. Right. That wasn't in my contract. That's what I found out. You are not, they are not required to give you credit if, you're not, if it's not in the contract. And can you specify what type of credit, like inspired by, based on? Oh yeah, you all can. different. I, yeah. We didn't have anything, mm-hmm. uh, otherwise we would have had it. So you got to make sure in your contracts that you have you'll be given proper credit. Mm-hmm. If anything gets made, it has to be in there. Otherwise, they don't have to do it. And you know, most people. Here's the thing. In most cases, most people would give you credit. Most people sure, are no, absolutely. enough. Even the worst Hollywood asshole will still do it. You know? <laughs> even if just to avoid a lawsuit, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Because uh, you know, a lot of people like to say, "Oh, we we got this is this is based on this thing." You know, they, they like people like to say they got it from some a book or something. But uh, for whatever reason, Chris Carter wanted to hog it all to himself, mm. and it it really it really went bad on him because after that, I'm not saying that my lawsuit was the was what hurt him, but uh, I think it helped. You know, his show. X Files went down the hill. I, I felt that the quality went down badly towards the end. Mm-hmm. His show Millennium got canceled. His show, this Lone Gunman, didn't last very long. Um, and then he hadn't worked for years and years until he did the X Files movie, which was like, I don't know, 10, 12 years after the show ended. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So, and that didn't, it wasn't a huge hit or anything. And I guess he's finally coming back to television with some show i don't know but um he's been you know off the radar for a long time so mm-hmm. it really didn't help his case to do what he did right right um lastly i wanted to ask you uh i i was talking to chuck dixon uh and he was explaining to me the whole profit sharing system that dc comics now has in place i guess it was set up in I don't know, maybe the late 90s for what i recall uh, that has in place for their creators, like Chuck created the character Bane, and so now that Bane is going to be in the Dark Knight and with his Batman and Robin, he gets some some, more, some sort of residual from that. He created the character, even if he doesn't own the character. Um, but since you've done a number of projects with Image, and and that's obviously solely creator owned, um, even though Image is the publisher, um, how does that work in terms of when you get property i mean you obviously own the property outright so anything that's done with it you obviously get all of the you know residuals all the the profits from that but when you get a a comic done by image when image publishes your comic book what is the sort of you know initial startup cost i'm assuming they they publish it based on their dime and then you split profits or they take a share from what comes back or how does that work well, uh, with Image, um, basically you have to pay them a fee for publishing the book. So that fee is comes out of whether you make money or lose money, you still got to pay that fee. Oh, okay. That fee also includes an ad in in uh, the catalog, the Diamond catalog. Right. Uh, but um, so, and then any kind of trades or other books that you publish with Image there's basically their, the image fee that gets applied. But other than that, you don't have to share anything with them. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing to consider is that uh, if your books are being distributed through Diamond, Diamond takes a hefty sure. cut of their distribution fee. So you have to factor that in. Uh, you know, So it's hard to make a profit uh, nowadays doing uh, small press uh uh, create their own books, um, and really most people do them so that they can hopefully get a deal. Right. And, it's sort of, and that's kind of why a lot of the books are kind of aimed at, at that, uh, which is why I, I was doing a lot of my stuff. It was hope, hoping to get a deal, but uh, you know that's not the main reason I did them. Uh, I, I did them also because I wanted to do them, but um, I think that... Uh, the thing I love about 
digital comics is I really think it's leveling the play, playing field because it's it's eliminating the middleman. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you do have a middleman, it's 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 not going to be as bad as in print because the cost of print is so extreme um, that uh, it's hard, you know, because really a comics it's it's hurt comics the price of comics uh the fact that it's like four or five dollars for a comic book right it, it cuts into people's ability to sample or try new new things so right right if you can make them for a dollar or or two dollars uh or less that's gonna get a lot more people reading and i think that's gonna be the, the way it's going to go with uh, comics is they'll be digital and they'll be like 99 cents or less. Right. Mm, yeah. Which is going to make more people exposed, is going to get more people exposed to them. And that'll help revitalize the industry, I think. But we're still in that kind of gray zone where the business model hasn't fully worked out. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's going to get there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Lastly, we like to do a, a little segment called Rapid Fire, which is just an either-or type question. Um, just a half a dozen questions, but uh, to kind of uh, you know let the listeners know a little bit more about you. Um, so here we go. Uh, Mac or PC? Both. I have a PC and an iPad. Okay. Um, music or podcasts? I don't know what you mean. What do I listen to? <laughs> right, when, when you're writing, perhaps. Oh, music. Okay. Um, better dark future film, uh, Blade Runner or The Matrix? Blade Runner. Um, fantasy or sci-fi? Uh, that's hard. <laughs> it just depends. But I probably sci-fi, you know, I have very particular about my fantasy. Mm-hmm. I like fantasy, but I'm very particular. Um, better villain, Lex Luthor or the Joker? I'm more of a Lex Luthor guy because the Joker really wasn't an interesting character until the last 10, 20 years. Um, before that, he was just silly. Right. But he's become an interesting character. But I, I still think Luthor is a better character overall. Yeah, and you had, you know, obviously written the unauthorized biography of Lex Luthor, which is, is, is terrific. It's like the killing joke, but for Lex Luthor. I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, with the the Joker, there's been some really good Joker stories written, like Brian Azzarello's and Alan Moore's mm-hmm. Killing Joke, but um, uh, I still think the best Joker thing is yet to come. I, I still think they haven't totally nailed the Joker in in the comics. I haven't seen one yet that I that pulls it off for me. But um, I think it's a character who has a lot of potential, but he isn't evolving. A lot of comic book characters are evolving over time as, as people bring new insights into them. Um, they become sort of, they kind of, they're organic because they have different people writing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, you know, I grew up on the, the scientist Lex Luthor, the sort of guy who can invent a ray gun out of a light bulb and a pack of chewing gum or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I, I happen to like that Lex Luthor, the businessman Lex Luthor is what I wrote. My unauthorized biography was the, was when he was the businessman Lex Luthor. Right. Right. 
Um, and I still think there's potential there, but I kind of like the idea of somebody who is an intellectual Superman, basically. Mm-hmm. He is intellectually as powerful as Superman. Right. It's physically. Right. And he, and it's his own vanity that, that makes, makes him lose. Right. Because he's too smart for his own good, basically. Right. <laughs> and it's a good commentary on the human nature, whereas the Joker is just, uh, represents chaos. Right. And he represents disorder and insanity. And it, there's not a lot of, to be learned from that because a story is about uh, learning. Uh, well, a story is really a good story is about making a point about life that people can relate to. That's the stories that people uh, remember or stories that have some kind of impact or statement to make about causality or why things are the way they are, or they, they give us an idea of, of uh, the nature of things, uh, they have a lesson in them and of some kind. Without preaching, I just mean they inspire. They they give us an insight, an epiphany about something that we take for granted. That's a good story. Does that, mm-hmm. and the characters that can inspire that can be a lesson when they're done right. Because Luther has been done very badly by so many people, but when he's done properly um he actually provides an insight which makes him a more elevated character than a lot of characters uh which are just there to be punching bags for the hero you know right and he's not really that he's in fact he's rarely involved in physical fights which makes him which separates him from most super villains i mean if you look at a another great example that is doctor who I really like Doctor Who because he's a guy who doesn't fight people and he doesn't kill people generally. Right. And yet, you know, it, that makes him a very original character because he uses his head. You know, he doesn't, um, I mean, a lot of it is nonsense how he pulls, how he gets out of situations. But, um, <laughs> you know, the fact that he uses his head and he talks to people, he talks his way out of situations, that makes him a much more interesting original character and i think that's why he's been so successful right over such a long period of time yeah because he's just not like anybody else there's nothing there's really no character like him that i can think of Mm -hmm. and in some ways oh go ahead well i just think those kind of characters are when you're when you're creating characters um you got to think about how they can stand out from the pack because there's so many characters out there in the world you know, why does James Bond, Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan, why do those characters stand out so much that they can last so long and still be popular uh, throughout time? What is it that makes them stand out like Batman and Superman? There's something unique. I mean, people have imitated those characters, but those guys, those characters were original archetypes and the challenge is to try to come up with something that's going to be like that. And it's not easy, but it's important that when you create a character, um, they're not just another James Bond, Jason Byrne, Bourne or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're, they're an original, there's something unique about them. Yeah, no, definitely. And last question in honor of Esper's. Uh, Psychics, real or fake? (laughs) 
again, that's a tricky. <laughs> you have to understand I'm very agnostic about most things um, because I think it's uh, – we don't know a lot of things. We only assume we know things. Um, and most of our science is theory. It's not fact. It's based on theory. So, um, you know, some of the theories are provable and they can be shown to work. But so in the case of the word, it's hard to say. I think most psychics are fake, but um, I think that uh, is a possibility that on some quantum level, your thoughts might have influenced physics somehow. Mm -hmm. I've read scientific articles that suggest that there is something to it, um, but as it's portrayed in fiction, I would say that's false, but um, it's hard to say, you know. <laughs> well, and when there's when there's so many fakes out there, if there's anything that is legitimate, it sort of gets overshadowed by, you know, you start to just assume it's all fake because, you know, there's all the the uh, charlatans, you know, advertising on TV. And, you yeah. know, it's hard to believe anything's actually real when you look at them. <laughs> Most of them are fake because it's what they do is very, very old science of listening um, most psychics, quote unquote, or fortune tellers, they learn how to listen to people because people give, have tells when they talk, when, when a person's in a conversation, they'll, they're telling you things subconsciously without realizing it about themselves. Mm-hmm. They're, they're letting out their aspirations and fears and desires in the course of the conversation. It's sort of like, because most of us do not talk on the nose, as they say in the writing term. Most people talk in code or they we talk around things or we talk we don't we not direct most of us when we talk. So we choose the our words are a way of dancing around things and how we choose to dance around things is revealing. So a person that knows how to listen can actually read a person's mind. Ah. Uh. And that's how fortune tellers do it, is they listen the more they hear somebody talk, the more they can determine like what they're thinking, mm-hmm. what their fears and desires are so that they can play on those. And that's how they do it. Yeah. That's how mentalists work, you know. Right, and, right. Uh, that's basically what uh, fortune tellers are mentalists. Mm-hmm. So I think most of that is fake, but... Um, as to whether it exists or not, that's a different subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that'll be for, for that's the a next, whole different interview. <laughs> yeah, that'll be the next interview. We'll, we'll, we'll like delve more into the psychic thing. Um, well, that's all the time we have. Uh, thank you so much. It was a great chat, uh, James. I really appreciate it. And uh, in uh, in addition to everything uh, HUD related, James's website uh, has a lot of great writing tips, and you should definitely go check that out. That's at uh, thehud.com. And uh, you can also find more info on James and other writing tips at our website at scriptsandscribes.com. And if any listeners have any questions on the craft or business of writing, send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptsandscribes. There's no and in the middle, just at scriptsandscribes. Thanks for listening. 